You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you haven't done so already, we encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29 that we just read from this morning. We are going to be covering the entire chapter And so you will want to follow along as we kind of work at a pretty quick pace here. Uh, If you are using one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew, you can turn to page 24 and follow along. And we say this every so often, but we do mean it, and maybe we should say a little more. If you, by the way, don't have a Bible that you read from regularly, uh, that Bible that you're looking at in the pew in front of you, take that home. That is our gift to you. We want you to be studying and knowing God's Word. Um, So take that. But follow along with us this morning in Genesis chapter 29. Now look, our story today, and and Casey read the first part of it for us, when you're thinking about stories like this, the reality is, man, we are captivated by compelling stories. And and when I say compelling, that doesn't always mean good and happy stories, but but compelling stories. Stories that have this intrigue seem to, to grab more attention. And how about stories where there's scandal and betrayal and heartache now, you may be here this morning and you're saying, well, well those aren't really the best stories, right? We want the, the ones that end well. We want all the happy ones. But the reality is media executives make millions of dollars every single year giving you TV shows and movies with these same characteristics, scandal, betrayal, heartache. Well, long before the channel TLC had a show called Sister Wives, We are going to see in the very book of Genesis that they predated that by a long shot. It had its own version. And let's just say there is plenty of drama in our episode today. Now to quickly catch you up, if you haven't been with us for a while, we're we're working our way through the book of Genesis. God has uh, come to Abraham. He's made promises to him that not only for Abraham and his family, but but that Abraham's family would grow and then be a blessing to the entire world. And yet... As we've seen in the last few weeks, Jacob, his grandson, has messed up. He's, he's manipulated, he's stolen, and now he's fleeing for his life. He's left his homeland with, with, with just a little while, at least that was the goal, hoping his brother's anger would subside after he deceived his father, stole from his brother, a blessing that was meant to make him secure, make him in charge of his father's whole enterprise, setting him up with financial security, and yet he's had to leave. And so his, his mother and his father have sent him back to his mother's homeland to, in search of a wife. And we're going to see today that pursuit of a wife going to this, his mother's homeland doesn't go probably how Jacob anticipated it going. But I do want us to see from our text today, if we could sum it up, this chapter, we would see that Jacob finds the woman of his dreams. There's our happy moment. But he's deceived into marrying her sister first, causing disillusionment for both Jacob and Leah. All right, so what are we going to take from this today? What's our takeaway? What's our excitement? What's our thing we're going to learn about God and and about who we are? We're going to see that the Lord's observation, the Lord taking notice, and his love toward Leah depicts the gospel love that he has for all who seek him. We're going to see our guides noticing and loving And that depicting the gospel love of Jesus Christ in her life today. 
Now look, I wanna walk through this story at a pretty brisk pace. That's why I told you. And, and Casey read the first part for us. And we're, and we're gonna make some observations at the very end. That's kind of the, the plan for today. Now we're gonna, we're gonna get to the hope that I just talked about, but we're gonna have to walk through and trudge our way through the muck first. So to hang out with me for a while, and then I promise there will be a little bit of a, of a, of a happy ending, uh, or at least pointed towards that. All right, so as you look back over what, what Casey just read, Jacob is continuing his travel eastward. And, and just in case you're not familiar with that or if you've forgotten, moving eastward in the book of Genesis is not a good thing. That's tendently to be moving away from the promises of God uh, in the context of judgment or vanity or alienation. And so this journey eastward is filled with heartaches and far from the ideal. And as we're gonna see, Jacob's gonna experience those same things. And so he comes, as he's been traveling, looking for uh, his mother's family, he comes to a well in the middle of a field and there's three flocks of sheep just sitting around the well in the middle of the day. And so he, he's, he's interested in what's going on. He engages these shepherds. He says, hey, where are you guys from? And they tell him they're from the right location. So, well, well do, you know, do you know Laban? You know Nahor's grandson? Oh, yeah, yeah, we know him. Well, is he good? Like, is he all, is he good? Yeah, he's doing great. In fact, his... His daughter's coming with his sheep in just a moment. And then in the strange, in verse seven, strange, Jacob kind of changes the tone and he kind of starts to castigate these shepherds. He's like, what are you doing sitting around when you should be watering the sheep while there's still daylight so you can go back out to pasture? So you have this interaction where he's been searching for the people that he needs to find and then he immediately, unfortunately, slips back into the Jacob that we've come to know, which is one who is arrogant one who is prideful. And so therefore he just starts to get on to these shepherds. Now we're gonna see that the Bible kind of sets that up against who Jacob is and the positive from Jacob is he's a hard worker and God's gonna actually show that his work is fruitful. But right here, he engages with these shepherds in a, in a pretty harsh way considering he just met them. And then it says in verse nine, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. Now, if you were with us for a while, if you look, remember back to chapter 24. Chapter 24 is when Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, sent his own servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And in doing so, there was a, there was a servant who came across a well who, as he was talking to the Lord, just at the right time, Rebecca shows up. And this is reminiscent of that. And so they get to talking and finding out who they are. And he gets overwhelmed with joy and excitement for finding the right family. And so he embraces her and he tells her all about who he is. And so we see in verse 12, he runs, she runs home to tell her father Laban. Now it's interesting in meeting her though, as this stone is over the well and as these shepherds are sitting around, you get the impression that this stone is a big stone. It's gonna take a bunch of people to move it. Well, something about this girl that's walking up and all of a sudden, this strength that we've not seen from Jacob so far, he goes right up, he's like, well, forget that. And he just rolls the stone out of the way and he starts to water her sheep. Let me just tell you, there's something about, something about a girl. And when a guy sees one that he finds attractive, I don't know, we just seem to be able to do these things that we don't know how we did them. Uh, also can lead to some dumb things, of course. But in this case, Jacob, I don't know, ate, ate some spinach, not sure, whatever, rolled the stone away overwhelmed to see her and she runs off to tell Laban and so when Laban hears the news in verse 13 also reminiscent of chapter 24 he runs out to meet Jacob embraces him invites him to his home and it says the end of verse 13 Jacob told him all that had happened 
I'm not sure he told him all that happened. Let's be real, the context here doesn't require that he gave him every detail. I'm not sure he necessarily told him how he cheated his brother and, and lied and, and, and deceived his father and stole the blessing. And I'm not sure he really gave him all of that. But he gave him enough to say, hey, I really am going to be in charge of a great wealth, but I'm here penniless right now. And I'm single and you know, my, my, my mom doesn't really like the women back there, so she sent me here to find a more noble woman. You know, that's kind of how I anticipate or think that this uh, conversation probably went on. Although maybe he did share all the details because Laban says, well, you really are just like me. Well, we're gonna find out that Laban absolutely means that. Here you're gonna have two men who are more like than they realize, who even though they are family, have no problem stealing from their own family members. And then in verse, the end of verse 14 says, Jacob stayed with him a month. Now Jacob's there, he's, he's with them. He's not just sitting around doing nothing. He's working, he's laboring, uh, most likely as a shepherd. And so Laban comes to him in verse 15 and says, just because you're my relative, you shouldn't work for free. Tell me what your wages should be. Now I think Laban sees that Jacob's a hard worker. And we're going to see in, in future chapters how uh, that shows to be true. But I think there's more going on here, right? Because if he said, hey, you're part of my family, that's what he's just said above that. In that day and age, you didn't pay family members for work. You worked together. And if there's profits, you shared them equally. If, if, if there's losses and, and somebody has to go hungry, you all go hungry. He's not, he's not treating Jacob quite like that. But he's not treating him like a slave or a servant either where someone as, who's paying off of a debt. So he's got to figure out what he's supposed to do with this Jacob guy. So he's kind of like family. He's kind of not like family. And so he invites Jacob into the conversation saying, what should I pay you? Look, Laban's not a great guy. No qualms. But he's no dummy. Jacob, as we're going to see, he's not really that good of a businessman yet. So Laban asked for him to put his cards on the table first. Now look, this is in verse 16, this is where I feel like this story is more like a movie. And I don't, I don't mean like one of those really good movies. I mean, I mean like one of those lifetime movies, you know, super predictable, over the top. I know I just offended some people in here, but that's okay. Um, but I picture verse 15, like Laban is, I mean, Jacob is out working the fields. He's coming in, he's hot, he's sweaty, he's tired. And Laban kind of hits him up. Hey bud, you've been here for a month. Tell me what you think, you know, you want to work for. And then the, the, the narrator, the author here, cuts over to give us some back information that we should know. And then we should know that Laban has two marriage-aged daughters. The older's Leah, and the younger's Rachel that we've already met. Now, poor Leah. Poor Leah. She's only described in the Bible with this phrase. She had tender eyes. And to be honest, that's probably a little bit nicer than what it meant. Like your version may say she had weak eyes. Now, the word technically can just mean tender or gentle. For sure, it can mean that. But remember, it's put in contrast, right? See that but word? She had tender, weak eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. And by the way, there's no nuance there. She had a nice figure and she was good to look at. Leah is put in contrast to that. Some people have said, well, maybe weak eyes just simply meant her eyesight wasn't that good. Man, y'all are working real hard, right? Because if that was the case, I think what the author would have said is Leah has weak eyes, but Rachel can see really, really far. I don't think that's what's going on, right? Not what's going on. 
There was something about Leah's eyes, and some have hypothesized she was cross-eyed or had a lazy eye or something. But there was something about her that when you looked at her, she was not pleasant to look at. <laughs> poor, poor Leah. And then, of course, Rachel's the really pretty younger sister, right? Again, good Lifetime movie material here. Now, look, as I'm thinking through this, and maybe, maybe for some of you, depending on what you're coming from, Maybe you're frustrated that the Bible would even dare describe two women in such misogynistic terms, right? He didn't talk, the Bible doesn't talk about their personality, right? Or, or how much, how smart they are or what they're contributing. No, no, it, it doesn't say that at all. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, man, I am so glad that we don't live in a culture like that anymore. <laughs> well, let's, let's tap the brakes, right? That's, that's not what's happening at all. I mean, there are cultural differences when we study the Bible that we need to explain. There are things that are going on in a culture that we don't fully comprehend its context. But when we're talking about these, these things of the heart or desires of the heart, these things have been the same for a really long time. And so the Bible is just really direct at times because that's the world that we live in. Here you have an older single guy who's coming looking for a wife and there are two options in front of him. One who may not even be able to look him directly in the eye, you know what I'm saying? And then you've got the other one that is, his, her beauty just captivates, who captivates him. Look, you can pretend, if you want to, if you want to sit there in your chair and say, I, I mean, you want to be the most holy guy in the room. You can believe that all you want, but you ain't choosing the less attractive one if you've got the option. That's just, that's just not how it's doing. And so that's what's going on here. He sees the one that he wants. He sees the beautiful one. And it says in verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. And so he says to Laban, I'll work for you seven years so that I can marry your younger daughter. What's going on here is when, when the servant of Abraham came, he came with 10 camels. He came with gold bracelets. He came with, with all kinds of clothing. He came with the riches of Abraham. And Jacob shows up with nothing. And so he offers himself in service to pay for the bride price for Rachel. Now, again, I told you Laban's the good businessman here, Jacob not so much. Jacob offers what something in the neighborhood of like three to four times the bride price when you add up what his work would cost. I mean, he's lovesick and it's just not a great decision to like go in a negotiating table lovesick, right? I know we have some people that have been in sales in here. If you go to the dealership and you just go on and on about how amazing this car is or you, you're trying to make an offer on a house and you make it over the top how excited you are, you're probably not getting the best deal, right? Jacob, he, ain't, he hadn't learned that yet. So he goes and he makes this declaration and, and, and you know, Laban, he's got, I, I just picture the slick back hair. Right, and he's he's going. You know, she is really beautiful. I, I mean, I guess I can let you have her for that price. I mean, because we're family. Um, I, I guess so. You know, because I like you, I'll let you have her at that price. All the while, he is chuckling inside. This guy is an idiot, and he's lovesick. And I have just taken him. Laban spots the sucker here. But anyway, he does this, and then you get this. What should be a really romantic verse in chapter in verse twenty. When it says that Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, but they only seemed like a few days to him because of his love for her. Oh man, isn't that just sweet? But let's, before we get all wrapped up in this sappy Lifetime movie scene here, remember, remember who Jacob is at this point. He's never been actually loved equally by his dad. 
And now he's even, even because of the trickery, he's disappointed him. He's brought shame to the family. He doesn't know the love of his brother. His brother Esau wants to kill him. And I mean, literally kill him. He had the love of his mother, but because of having to flee, he doesn't have that anymore either. He's stolen a blessing that should have set him up for financial security, but instead he's run away penniless. He has no security. See, are you starting to see what the author is trying to convey here? Jacob's an outcast. He's unloved and he's seeking affection and worth. If only there was someone who could fulfill his desire to be loved. If, if only he could get married to this woman who would show him affection and make him feel complete. Yeah, I mean, maybe Jacob really does love Rachel, at least the best way he understands it. And maybe the time does fly by because the thought of her being his wife brings him so much excitement. I mean, if only he could finish these seven years of work, then he'll get what he's been missing in his life. He'll, he'll, he'll have that one true love. He'll be complete. If you think I'm overselling it, look at verse 21. And I'm gonna read this from the ESV because of the way it words it here. He says, give me my wife. He's speaking this to his future father-in-law. Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is complete. That says exactly what you think it says. Scholar Robert Alter says that this statement is so blunt, so graphic, so sexual, so over the top and inappropriate and non-customary that over the centuries, Jewish commentators have to do all kinds of backpedaling to try to smooth this out. But he says it's not that hard to understand. The narrator is showing us a man driven by and overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for one woman. His desire isn't for marriage, but for the perks of marriage. Jacob's life is empty. Maybe last week's text showed us, as Cody showed us last week, that, that he's, he started to understand who God is and that God loves him. But at this point, he hasn't understood that God's love for him is enough. So in his mind, everything in his life is empty. No family, no inheritance, nothing. Now there's this beautiful woman, and if he could just get to the finish line, if he could just finish the work, he could take her, literally something, maybe everything in his lousy life would be okay. Maybe life would have meaning for him. Maybe, maybe he would know that everything is gonna be all right. We've been following along in our story. Even if you haven't read ahead, you can probably get the sense that something's not gonna go quite right. So in verse 22, Laban says, okay, Let's throw a big feast. Let's celebrate the wedding. And so he invites all these people. He sponsors a feast. <laughs> Verse 23. But that night when he goes to send Jacob and Rachel away to their wedding bed, he switches out Leah, her for Leah. And Jacob sleeps with her. And then he gave a servant to her as well. well. We'll be more introduced to her next week. See, Laban knew Jacob was a sucker. And who knows how long he's been planning this. But he probably figured he couldn't get Leah married off any other way, so he would probably just do the next best thing. He'd switch them out. And it may be one of the most shock-filled verses of the Bible, or at least so far in our study of Genesis. And again, I'm gonna read this from the ESV, but it says, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. I mean, talk about an understatement. Talk about how words on a page really don't capture the moment. 
Jacob wakes up in the morning and you know, he's all happy and maybe the sunlight's starting to come through the tent went door and, and he looks over and it's just not what he expected. Behold, there was Leah. And he's racking his brain. I mean, wasn't Laban just sending out the wedding invitations? Wasn't it just last night that we were celebrating? And I mean, I saw Rachel, she was there. And he sends us away and he rubs his eyes again and he goes, he looks over, it's still Leah. I mean, understandably upset, right? Fair, fair. He jumps up and he runs to wherever Laban is and he goes to him and he says, what's the meaning of this? What have you done? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? And he was steaming mad. Now, before we get on to what happens, there's gotta be in your mind, because I know I had, like, come on, Jacob. Are you, are you for real telling me you didn't know? Like, how is that possible? Well, most likely this feast, and Laban's a smart guy. He made sure that there was a lot of wine to drink. He made sure Jacob was not really with it. And then in that custom as well, the, the, the bride would be heavily veiled, not just the normal, but heavily veiled. And so between the intoxication, the veil, and then the darkness of where they were, he didn't know. Because he wasn't really all with it, most likely. And so he goes and he questions him. And Laban, and I picture just a really matter-of-fact response with a little smug to it, you know what I'm saying? It's not our custom. No big deal. It's not our custom here to give the younger before the older. I mean, he's had seven years to tell Jacob this. He doesn't tell him. Doesn't tell him. So, I mean, was it custom or was this Laban? I think it's Laban. But look at what Laban offers him in verse 27. Hey, hey, finish this week of celebration. Jacob's not celebrating at this point. But let's finish this week of celebration. I'll give you Rachel in exchange for you working another seven years for me. <laughs> I'm like, what, really? I mean, there's not a man in this room that would not have knocked Laban on his backside. Like, beat him until he was barely breathing, right? I mean, come on, I can't be the only one that would have had that thought. And yet we have no verbal response from Jacob. Why? Interesting when he said, why have you deceived me? That same word is the exact same word used when, when Jacob went to deceive his own father Isaac. In the dark, when he couldn't see because of his blindness, he reached out and he touched what he thought was Esau, and it was Jacob. And Laban has out-Jacobed Jacob. And in the darkness, he's reached out to touch what he thought was Rachel, and it was Leah. And maybe in just that moment, he realized, okay, I, I understand. Maybe, I don't know. But either way, that he doesn't respond verbally. So the anger in his tongue in verse 25 turned to shame and sadness as he put his tail between his legs, as it were, and he did as Laban requested, and he works for another seven years. So Laban, I mean, so Jacob finally got the wife he had been desiring. But the inward and even outward peace that he hoped that this union to Rachel would give him, it's nowhere to be found. And it won't be found. But in verse 30, we see the forecasting of this lifelong tension between the two women. When the Bible says that he loved Rachel more than Leah. It's not a good way to go into marriage. Well, look, for the, for the, for the most part, our focus has been on Jacob for the entire story so far. And, and rightly so, right? We're tracing Abraham's lineage. We're looking for not only the Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3, we're looking for who is gonna continue the promises that Abraham's name will be great, he will be a great nation. And so we're tracking with, 
with Jacob. He's the grandson of Abraham, the one who God made all these promises to. And yet, only two generations removed, this plan of God's looks like a mess again. So we started this chapter with Jacob looking for love and fulfillment and purpose and worth. But by the time we get to verse 30, is he actually really better off? He's worked 14 years for a lying, deceiving, now father-in-law when he was supposed to be gone just a little while. Instead, now he's gone for a long while. And he's been deceived into marrying a woman he didn't want. But because he had set all of his affection on this other one, he marries her too. Like we don't have a long time to go into this, but I do want to, the Bible never condones polygamy here. It never endorses it. In fact, it seems to go out of its way to show all of the, the, the time of brokenness and strife caused by it. God's design was for one man, one woman to be wed for life. And yet, as we keep seeing in the book of Genesis, God remains faithful to his promises even when his people mess up. And the Bible doesn't clean up or gloss over the failures of its heroes. We live in a culture in which people will bend over backwards to explain away all of the potential failures of the heroes of their world. And God doesn't do that because God doesn't need to do that because God is actually magnified in his working in the brokenness of these human lives. So Jacob finally gets Rachel and Jacob loved Rachel. But moving forward, his life isn't going to be what he'd hoped for. It's not going to be filled. I mean, it's going to be filled with strife and tension and deceit for a good long while. When we leave Jacob in verse, 20, in verse 30, I think it's fair to say we leave him in a state of devastation. But what about the sisters? I don't want to overlook them. We don't get any type of consent from Rachel, right? We, if you look back at 24, Rebecca is asked if she wants to go with. We don't get that here. Culturally, that wouldn't have been out of the norm, but we still don't get that. We know Rachel is loved, or at least how Jacob understood love. But she's going to have heartache too, and, and, and we'll leave that for next week. But then there was Leah. Oh, Leah. She's eternally described as unattractive and unloved. Well, maybe not eternally, but for a really long time. And she probably had hopes for her life as well. Like we forget that. It wasn't like she grew up going, oh, I hope I can just be some pawn in this. No, no, she had her own desires. She probably hoped for a man who would come and want to love her and maybe take her far away so she didn't have to continue to be compared to her more beautiful younger sister. She's had to live her entire lives in the shadow of Rachel. And as a result, Laban knew that no one was ever gonna marry her or at least offer money to marry her. So he's probably been trying to figure out for a long time, how do I get her out of the house? How do I unload her? And then he saw his chance and he took it. And so Laban, this girl, this is Laban, her, it's her own father. He didn't want her. And he gave her to a husband who doesn't want her either. And so now she's the girl that nobody wants. I think it's fair to say she had a hole in her heart just as large and just as big as the one in Jacob's. Both Jacob and Leah wanted someone to make them feel complete. They wanted to be made whole. Jacob had been out Jacob by Laban, but he was finding out his plan for completeness and purpose wasn't turning out like he had hoped. But then as we look at Leah in these next few verses, they're mostly quite sad. 
Verse 31, they say, when the Lord saw Leah was neglected, he opened her womb. But Rachel was unable to conceive. But even then before the Lord noticed, like, but, but look at the wording. She was neglected. Your, your translation may say she was hated. And by comparison to Rachel, she was. All of the affection of Jacob was on the, the other one with nothing left over for her. So you have Leah who's equally trying to fill a void of feeling wanted and for love. And she wants it all to come from Jacob and he has no desire to give that to her. She's married, that part of her plan, right? But she's still unloved. But notice who loves her. Notice who notices her in her weakness. Even when those closest to her who should have known don't, God does. And in his goodness, he blessed her. Even though she still doesn't quite get it yet. Verses 32 through 34, you have these first three sons. Now, if you've ever had children and you're getting ready to have children, you know that the naming of your children is a super fun opportunity. Now, yeah, of course, there's a wait. You don't want to be that one that picks the weird name that then like everybody else has to like say for the rest of your life. We get that. But, but over more, more than not, it is exciting. It's fun. You get to think about it. You get to throw out names. You have a great wait, but it's fun. This isn't fun. These children are not named out of the joy of Leah's heart. They're named out of her despair. She uses Hebrew words to express her longing for Jacob. Reuben's name means to see. She thought, well, now my husband will see me and I won't be invisible anymore. But the first birth of the first child didn't secure what she had hoped for. So there's another one. And she names him Simeon. And Simeon is tied to the verb to has heard. She's, what she's saying is now my husband will finally listen to me. He'll finally take notice of me. But he doesn't. This is in the third son, Levi, a play on the sound for becoming attached to. And so Leah expresses frustration in this one. At last, my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. How could he not love me now more than her? Look what I've given him. She's given him as many sons as Adam had, as Noah had. She's given him more sons than his own father Isaac had. Surely this would be enough. This would be enough for her husband to want her, to see her, to care for her, and to be attached to her. And let's be honest, Leah's not the last misguided woman who has believed that a pregnancy could repair a broken or fractured marriage. But for the same reasons that still prevail today, so it did for Leah. If I can just give my husband what he wants, and then by extension, I'll be the object of his love. And he'll care for me as his treasured bride. But that didn't happen for Leah. Like Jacob had placed too great emphasis and weight on marriage to Rachel, so too Leah had placed all of her hopes, all of her dreams of acceptance and of worth in the loving embrace of a man who didn't want her. Leah was trying to get an identity through childbearing and it didn't work. Because what did the text say right before that? Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. That meant every single day she was condemned. Every single day she had to watch as this man that she longed for longed for someone else. We left Jacob in devastation in verse 30. We're now leaving Leah in devastation in verse 34. All right, Pastor Ryan, what a, what a chapter. Man, that was exciting, right? What, what, what full of hope and happiness. 
Aren't you glad uh, that, that Cody keeps giving you these chapters that are just so full of, uh, of joy and excitement? Yes, thank you for that. Or maybe it's not that for you. Maybe you're like, yeah, that kind of sounds about right. I kind of get tired of coming in here every week and someone messes up, but then everything just turns out perfect for them. That's not real life. That's not my life. Friends, the Bible is real. And what I mean by real is I don't just simply mean that the stories that are contained really happened. That's true. But I mean that it's real in that it doesn't sugarcoat life. It shows us real life. It shows us. It it reflects us. It shows our messiness. And so when we look back over our text, I want us to see three observations quickly today. The first one's negative, and then the last two are positive. So first, the negative reality. And that is that fallible objects of longing produce disillusionment. Fallible objects of longing produce disillusionment. This chapter is full of messed up people living messed up lives. And then they know it. They know it's messed up. And so they do what they can to try to fix their situation. See, what led Jacob and Leah down this path of disappointment wasn't the desire for love. It wasn't for Leah to want to be a wife or to be a mother. Those aren't bad things. Those are good desires. But what led to their heartbreak was when they took their good desires and they made them ultimate desires. They recognized that something needed to be fixed in their lousy lives, but the fixes that they were dependent on were likewise lousy. And they couldn't give them what they so desperately wanted. How many of us are just the same way? We thought that this new job, this next right place to live, that this degree, that this relationship, or maybe the next one, if we could just figure out how to get more time to ourselves or get my schedule right, if I can get that, then I'll have peace. If I can enjoy life, I'll be seen and heard and maybe even adored and I will have value. Or maybe since a lot of you come here every week, you're sitting there going, no, no, I know better than that. I know that's not the right answer. So you kind of dismiss my question as for someone else, but I really do want to challenge you to look deep inside. What is that one or that two things that, that if you were to really be honest, admit to yourself and admit to the Lord, what is it that you've placed too much hope in and too much expectation of fulfillment in? Because whatever that thing is, the reality is that at some point you're gonna wake up figuratively or maybe literally, and behold, it's Leah. Well, if in the morning it's always Leah, then where's the hope? Is the hope just simply to, to deny longings? Just don't, don't long for love? Don't, don't long for it at all? Then everything's gonna be better for me? No, that's not the case. I don't think it's the longing that's the issue. It's the object of the longing that is the issue. All earthly objects of longings fail to live up to their promised fulfillment. All earthly objects of longing, they're gonna fail to live up to their promised fulfillment. Well, speaking of promises, where is God in all of this? Isn't it God who made promises to Jacob and his family? As I've been pondering this passage, preparing for this, And as I really like to do whenever I'm studying God's word, I like to ask questions of the text or from the text. And one of those starts with, okay, what am I supposed to learn about God? And what do I see him doing? And of course, following up is then how should I respond to that? 
Well, the second observation this morning is that God is always active in the lives of his people. Always active. In the last chapter, God promised Jacob to be with him for wherever he went. And in the beginning of this chapter, we, we see God leading Jacob. He didn't just happen onto the right uh, well at the right time, right when Rachel was coming up. That's God's hand at work. We saw that more explicitly in chapter 24. Because in chapter 24, Abraham's servant, every step along the way, he's giving praise to God for the way God has been watching over his life and his journey. We don't get that here. Jacob is still acting out of his impulsive and his arrogant ways. Yeah, he interacted with God in chapter 28. But he's still got to learn who God really is and what it means to worship him. Not just as the one who grants him what he wants, but he is truly all that he needs. So we don't really see God is actively acknowledged in this chapter. But God isn't silent and he's not oblivious just because his creatures fail to acknowledge him. See, look at what God does. Specifically right now in the life of Leah. In verse 31, God is active in the opening of her womb. Just as he was for Sarah, just as he was for Rebecca. Regardless of the plans of man, God is actively participating in his plan that he came up with to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham. But there's even more going on here than her just having a child. Even though, I mean, Leah has made a functional idol out of her husband, right? You'd agree? She's put all of her hope, all of her excitement into this one. And yet, even there, she's naming these children. She gives glory to God. She acknowledges God, at least. And she doesn't just use the really common phrase Elohim or just the generic for gods that all of them would have understood. She uses the very personal name of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so while she doesn't still fully understand him, that he's not just there to grant her wishes, She's still calling out to this one. And God in his loving kindness and his patience, he's working through these, specifically these births of these first three children to get her to the place where she can have this fourth one. Because there's something different in this one. How do I know that? Look at verse 35. See what's different. It says, and she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. This time, it's emphatic. It's almost defiant. There's no mention of a husband. There's no mention of her plight. Her only focus is on the Lord. And she's not using him to get something from him. No, it's just simply on him. She's finally taken her own heart's desires and her deepest desires and she's taken them off of her husband and off of her kids and she's placed them solely on the Lord. Look, let's be blunt. Leah's life was stolen from her up until this point. Jacob never knew the intimate love of his father, but Leah's own father loved her so little that he switched her out. He found a way to get rid of her. He didn't care about, by the way, how that would make her feel. He didn't care about the fact that she may be signing her, he may be signing her up for a lifetime in which her husband didn't love her. He didn't care. And Jacob participates in that by actively neglecting her, shunning her for the sake of his other wife. Up until now, nobody's looked out for Leah. Nobody's cared about her. Nobody's loved her as the treasure that God made her to be. Nobody that is except God himself. God takes notice 
God loves her. And maybe, just maybe by verse 35, the first time in her life, she's starting to get it. This God who saw her, this God who loved her really was enough. Maybe that's why this fourth son's so important to us. Maybe that's why God uses this one to bring about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Messiah, through the line of Judah. And our third and final observation this morning is that we are Leah, not Rachel. And that that's really a good thing. Rachel has built-in advantages. The world saw her, thought she was beautiful, would want her and not Leah. God came to the woman that nobody wanted. He came to the one that was unloved. He came to the one and he made her the mother in the line of Jesus. God is attracted to the people that the world is not attracted to. He loves those that the world rejects. Isaiah 54 says that God's a husband to the husbandless. Isaiah, uh, Psalm 68 says he's a father to the fatherless. That's who our God is. He loves and he cares and he takes notice and he gives us worth. Even when the world rejects and says we have no worth, he loves us. That's who our God is. So I think that's one reason why God takes notice of Leah, but I think there's more. Not just his character, but I believe he goes after and he shows love to Leah. He makes her, the girl that nobody wanted, into a mother in the line of Jesus. And by the way, this Jesus is the one that would fulfill all the promises of Abraham. I believe he goes after her, not because of the gospel that would come from her, but because his love for her is the gospel. It's not the gospel that's coming, it's because his love of her is the gospel. Think about when Jesus came to the earth. Was he like Rachel or was he like Leah? He was born in a manger. Now, look, I know we pretty that up at Christmas time. We make it look all happy. No, no, no. He was rejected. He had nowhere to come, be born. And he's born in a place that animals are sleeping and eating. He had no beauty, the Bible tells us, that we should desire him. He came to his own and his own did what? They rejected him. He became the man that nobody wanted even those closest to him in his time of need, his greatest time of need, they deserted him. And then hanging on the cross, his own father turned his face away. When Jesus had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus become the great, 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 great grandson of Leah? Why did he become the woman, the, the man that nobody wanted? Because it was for you and it was for me. He became the one rejected so that you could be accepted. He became the one despised so that you could be adored. He became sin on our behalf so you could become the very righteousness of God. Friends, that's the gospel. Absolutely the gospel. You and I, on our own, unworthy, unlovable, unattractive, deserving to be cast off from God. But because Christ became the despised, the rejected, the oppressed, the afflicted one, by his sacrifice, you could be healed and accepted and loved and experience peace. So this morning, take a moment, think, look at your life. Really look at your life. In our story, Jacob hasn't yet learned what Leah's learning here. Jacob is still proud and dependent on his own ingenuity and his strength to, think, to get what he thinks he wants. But Leah reminds us that no one gets in the right relationship with God by being haughty or proud. It's instead when she surrendered. It's instead when we surrender. When we surrender our hopes, when we surrender our plans, when we surrender our desires that we do truly find 
everlasting life. Look, if you've come, uh, if you've never come to that point of surrender, regardless if you've been here for a long time, it doesn't matter. If you've never come to that point of surrender, maybe you know all of the answers. Jacob knew obviously a lot of the answers, right? He knew the right things to say. And maybe that's you. But if you've never come to the point of true surrender, then maybe you're a Jacob. But the reality is that knowing and believing aren't the same things. If that's you, repent of your pride today. Humble yourself before God and learn as Leah did that God in Christ is absolutely enough for you. And if you are here today and you've been walking with the Lord, man, this story is for you today as well. If God takes notice of the unwanted, the unloved, then how much more does he take notice of you, his children? Look, it's easy for us to sometimes forget how we came to Christ. We came humbly. We came realizing that God was all that we needed. But sometimes over time, we kind of forget that. And we need to be reminded that the way we came, that he was our all, is the way we ought to continue to walk, that he is our all. He is our greatest desire. It's not in a job. It's not in a relationship. It's not in enough money in a bank account. It's not in any of those things. It's fully in Christ. He, was alone, he alone was enough for us on the day we came to Christ. And he's still enough for us today, tomorrow, and for all of eternity. God is enough. He is your greatest desire. Make him that today. Pray with me. Father in heaven, God, you are good. And God, you are patient with us who are stubborn. We are uh, impulsive at times. God, we can look at the things going on around us and we can blame someone else. We can blame ourselves. We can blame the world around us. And God, yet you call us just to simply humble ourselves, realize that you're in control, realize that you're good, realize that you are enough for us. God, I thank you for this story in your word. Not just simply for the gifts that you would give, but God, even the reality and the showing us of the brokenness of real life. God, thank you for the reminder that we too, like Jacob and Leah, can so often and so easily put all of our hopes and desires and for worth and for purpose and for love into the hands of someone or something else. God, we know that all of those things eventually will fail us. And in the morning, at some point, we're gonna wake up and realize that it was all just like Leah. But God, on the flip side of that, we thank you that you love the Leahs. We thank you that even though we were unattractive, in our sin, not beautiful, deserving of being cast aside from you. God, in Christ, who became the unwanted one, who became unloved, who became deserted so that we could be accepted and adored. God, we praise you for that, Jesus. May you be honored in all that we do. May you be honored in the way we praise you. May you be honored this morning as we leave here that all of our lives, hopes, and dreams are rested solely on who you are and what you are doing. God, we love you. We thank you in the name of Jesus this morning. Amen.